Hi, welcome to Building a Business That Lasts. My name is Jay Owen, and I'm your host. On a quest towards stories, tips, and ideas that will help you grow a business without being stressed out, worn out, and ready to quit. Each week, I'll interview other business owners who have successfully grown businesses of all types for many years. It's my hope that these conversations will help you build a business that lasts. On this episode, I interview Warren Wolanski. He is the president and founder of Plank, a Montreal-based digital agency that specializes in developing websites and mobile applications primarily for cultural and entertainment organizations. He started this business almost 20 years ago in 1998. So I'm really excited to learn from him today and share his thoughts on uh, business and leadership and teamwork and all the other things that go along with building a business that lasts. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Warren today. Hey, Warren, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. So you have been in business for a long time doing a very similar thing to what I do, which is running a digital agency. One really unique thing about this episode for anybody that's listening, well, two things, actually. One is um, I'm drinking a mimosa during the episode for the first time, so that's unique. And wow. the second is uh, that you are actually in Canada, in Montreal, so you're my first uh, international uh, podcast uh, attendee, so I'm excited about that. Well, I guess Canada is international, but I guess I always feel like uh, Canadians and, and Americans are pretty much brother, sister, cousins. So we're not all that different. We're just slightly different. <laughs> well, the, the great thing is we've had the opportunity to meet in person a, a couple of times at bureau events uh, for digital agency owners. And so that's been really fun. And, uh, you know, I just love seeing some of the stuff that you guys are doing online and, and excited to have you on the show. Oh, thanks. I appreciate that. So one of the things I always like to start with is just to hear from you. You've been in business almost 20 years. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, Quite a huge accomplishment. Very few businesses make it to that milestone. But I'd love to rewind you all the way back to the beginning. You know, you're in the late 90s at the beginning of your business uh, when you started Plank. Tell a little bit about that story for people. What made you kind of take that leap and and go from whatever you were doing before to what you're doing now? And and just tell us about those early years and what got you started. For sure. Um, You know, it's really interesting timing that that this came up. Because we're heading into our 20th year, I've actually started to really start to think back to that time. And we've been writing some journal posts and exploring it and, you know, going through archives. So it's, it's really an interesting time. So in thinking about why I started it, There's kind of two factors to it. One of it I would honestly call arrogance. In other words, I was, you know, late 20s, 26, 27, and I'd worked freelance for a few different companies um, over about a year and a half after finishing university. And I just looked at how other companies were running and I just felt like I I could do it. I felt like I had the capacity to do it myself, which is crazy because I had no background in business. I had no marketing background and, and I just thought that I could somehow pull this off. The other thing was um, my personal interest in the internet at the time, and probably still is what I'm driven by, is design, usability, interactivity, and user experience. And the companies that I had worked with, a lot of the times that wasn't their focus. So I really wanted to build something which was more creatively focused and creatively driven. Yeah, I love that. And it's interesting, you talked about kind of almost having an arrogance or a attitude that kind of gave you the ability to start something that maybe you weren't ready for. But I think that's true for a lot of entrepreneurs. I mean, it's kind of like I compare it to having children sometimes. Like people always say, well, I'm not ready to have a child. I'm like, 
you're never ready to have a child. Like there, there is nothing that can prepare you to have a child, no matter how many books you read. And I feel like that's kind of true for business too. You, you can't actually be totally prepared to start your own business. You, you're going to find out you don't know a lot of things along the way. I think you're kind of, not kind of right. I think you're totally right. Um, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't even call it a business at the time. It was just, hey, and, and it was myself and two partners because I, on one side, I, I say I arrogantly started a business. On the other end, I didn't even have the confidence in myself to think that I could run something myself. So, hmm. it, you know, my there were so many different emotions at the time going through my head. I think it just came down to I wanted to be in charge of my own destiny, even though I didn't even know what that destiny looked like. Mm, that's really interesting. So you started out with two partners. So were there were three of you in the early days? There were three of us in the early days, one of which didn't work out early on. So he had he had left to go on and pursue other things. And then my other business partner, her name's Chris Jen, she was with us until 2004. And then she herself also decided, you know, this isn't for me. I want to do other things. And she, you know, I, I remember specifically having discussions with her and saying the words. So when in 10 years from now, in 15 years from now, and I was completely comfortable envisioning that future and saying, hey, I can see myself here sitting in the seat, working on this company, working on this little team for 10, 15 years. And it almost made tears well up in her eyes. So it was clear that she just didn't want to invest that much, that big chunk of her life into, into one thing. That's really interesting. I think that that vision point is really important, especially talking about entrepreneurship. I think you have to have that vision if you want to build a long-term business and a business that lasts you know, decades in this case. And that's not for everybody, and that's okay. Some people want to do one thing for a couple of years and go do something else for a couple of years and constantly do something different. But I always feel like even though I've been in the same business uh, similar to you for, for almost 20 years, I still feel like it's kind of totally different all the time because – so much changes in the industry. Now, there's certain principles and things that are foundational, but I mean, I feel like so much has changed in the last 20 years, especially when it comes to the internet, that it's always interesting to me and new, even if it's, even if it's the same business. Yeah, I would agree with you. I mean, I think one, the internet changing makes it exciting. Two, being a service business, it, it always happens that we're starting on new projects. So mm. if something feels like it's, it, you know, we're getting stale or going in one direction, a new project can totally reinvigorate things. The other thing that I've found is that I feel like I personally have gone in what I would call four or five year cycles where for four or five years, I can be very comfortable with what I'm personally doing. And then I find that I have to shift what I'm doing in some way or another. So that even if it is the same company, same room, and in some cases, some of the same people, the job or the or what I'm focused on has to shift so that I can get challenged. I usually find that I feel a little bit of burnout when I hit that four or five year mark doing the same thing. And then I, I just think to myself, I need to shift and do something different. Yeah, I totally resonate with that. I, I always say that I'm the least comfortable when I'm the most comfortable. And what I mean by that totally. is that I, I get to a point where I feel like everything's just firing all cylinders. And there, I think part of it is that entrepreneurial spirit inside of me that goes, okay, I need something fresh. I need, I need something that's challenging me. I need something, you know, different, whatever that is. And so I, I totally resonate with that. Yeah. I mean, if I think back to the early days, I mean, for the first four or five years, I really wanted to be focused on doing the design myself. And then I got to another period where I wanted to then be focusing on managing projects and managing the team. And then I moved on from that and then was starting to take ownership of, of, of running the company overall. And then we promoted up one of my long-term employees, Steve Bissonnette, to be a partner. And then I had that, that ability to have a partner to deal with. And then I really started to focus on business development and marketing. And that's really where my focus is now. So it's, I just, I'm, always, I'm, I'm interested to see what comes next. 
Yeah, I want to come back to that promoting an employee to partner because I think that's going to be an interesting topic for a lot of people. But before I do that, one of the things you mentioned there as well, which I think is interesting, is you talked about kind of transitioning from being the technician to being the entrepreneur to being the manager. That's a big thing that I talk about a lot from a book called E-Myth that I love. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious for you, because you are really kind of a designer by trade, right? I mean, that, that's kind of like your specialty to some extent. Yeah, my background isn't traditionally in design, but it was communication studies. So a lot okay. of it was creative. The, I ended up focusing in that in that program in university on what they called at the time multimedia. In other words, we were dealing with building CD-ROMs, CD-ROM projects, and I fell in love with the internet. So I quickly shifted my interest towards internet design. So it was definitely content and, and design around digital projects. And uh, so it's not a traditional graphic design background, but it definitely is design focused. And that's what, what drove me originally. Hmm. And I'm curious for you, when you think about the three like types of roles from a technician who's actually doing the physical work to an entrepreneur who's casting vision and helping kind of coalesce people, and then a manager who's kind of doing more of the task-oriented stuff, making sure all the you know uh, T's are crossed and the I's are dotted, is there one of those that you struggle with the most or one of them that you feel the strongest drawn towards or is that change by season? Uh, I think it changes a little bit, but I would say I enjoy thinking about the company. In other words, you brought up the E-Myth, and I, it's been a while since I read that book, but I remember when I did read it at the time, it was one of the earlier books I read about about business because, again, not having a business background, I didn't even understand that there were books about it. I mean, mm. you, you know, but I didn't get the whole idea. And then when I read the E-Myth, that it really did resonate with me, that idea of working in or on the business. And once I accepted that the company itself was a creative project that I could own and meld and shape and work with the team on making it a place that is more interesting and vibrant and enjoyable, that in itself became a creative pursuit too. So that reminds me of a a quote that's in your bio on LinkedIn that I read. Now, I just want to read it because I think it's interesting. You said this, I try to give my team the opportunity to work on meaningful and interesting projects in a supportive, cooperative environment. I can trace my leadership style back to my summer camp days, and I do my best to make sure Plank is a great place to work. That seems like something that's really important to you. Yeah, I'm happy you read that. I haven't looked at that in a while, and, and I think that does resonate. I want my team to be challenged and not just challenged, meaning I want them to overwork hard and and overwork. I want them to have interesting projects that they can sink their teeth into and and really build their own skills from and learn from. And, you know, summer camp, you brought that up. um, It's in the bio because summer camp is something that I think was really important in developing me as a human being, as an individual. So a lot of a lot of what I learned going to summer camp kind of it, it works into the way I see the vision of the company and the way I want it to be run. I think I love things like that because it's so non-traditional in the sense of, you know, it's not like some specific class that you took in school or some formal process. It, you know, there's this idea and this kind of, you know, memory of summer camp and the things that that meant to you and how those things kind of now apply to your business, you know, many years later, that that to me, I just love that kind of stuff uh, to hear from business owners. That's really cool. Yeah, I was just going to quickly say towards that one of the stories that I remember from summer camp that resonated with me, and I didn't realize that how it applied to running a company until years later was I had done pretty well as a as a counselor at summer camp. And I at one point was helping to run half of the camp. Um, and it was a pretty large camp. And I remember the person in charge of uh, just ahead of me had said to me straight out, he's like, you're 19 years old and you're right now in charge of managing over 100 staff and three, 400 campers. He's like, it's very rare somebody at your age is going to get that leadership opportunity. And I didn't see it as that like that at the time. 
but obviously I think I gained a lot from it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a huge opportunity to be put in a position like that, especially at an early age, to be able to lead, you know, and have and have the opportunity to learn what that means to try and help encourage other people to to be able to operate at their highest levels and, and be able to be supportive and cooperative like you talked about. I think that's really critical. Absolutely. So I want to circle back. Like I said, uh, you talked about um, Steve on your team and promoting him from an employee to a partner. I think that's probably a very interesting topic for people out there that maybe have been in business for a few years and might be in a situation where they're, they have an employee that they're saying, hey, this this person might be kind of next level material. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that transition for you, how it came about and, and how that's worked for you. So how it came about was was like this. At, at, at certain points, so Steve was our first employee, the first person we hired. He had done every role in the company as we grew from being a team of three or four people to where we are now, which is roughly 15. Again, not a large company, but still substantial enough for me at least. So the thing that I noticed is that, one, he had done every job. So he understood the company as deeply as I did. Two, I think he was as, if not some days more bought in than I am to the company. He's, you know, he's always really just lived it as much as I have. So there was one day where I looked at him, I said, why aren't you a partner yet? You're just as bought into this company as I am. And he kind of laughed and agreed. So we just, we came up with a framework for him to become a partner because if he's not going anywhere, he deserves to benefit from helping to shape this company as much as I get the opportunity to do that. So the, what ended up happening, the, the benefit was, it was right around the time where I guess I wanted to transition some of my role a bit. So he's really taken over a lot of the day-to-day running of the company, whereas I'm working on trying to set the vision and also get us great, interesting work to work on. Yeah, I love that. that that's not a, a not a transition that I've tried to make or, or been successful at doing yet. I, I've been around for a while. We have about 12 people on the team internally, but I at some point could see needing that. So it's always interesting to me to hear people that have done it successfully. And I think that having met both you and Steve before at events, it's it's clear that you all operate as a, as a true team, and that's really cool to see. One of the things you uh, mentioned there was that he had done every job, and that's really, I think, important – or at least it's had a lot of value for me because I know on the team members who have kind of elevated a little bit in leadership roles within the company, a lot of them have had their hands in a lot of different things. And that creates so much value because even if they don't need to do the actual task, they understand at least how much time might be involved and what challenges might occur and what risks pop up. So I think that's really kind of a key point for him there as well. Yeah, I, th- I think you just identified something really important is that is that he, as a result of doing all those different things, has a deep understanding of the different parts of the company. And yeah, there's there's definitely the reality right now that I don't code on a day-to-day basis anymore, and neither does he, but we both at least have an intrinsic understanding of what that looks like, even if the tool set and the code and the depth of, of what the team can do right now is beyond what myself or he can produce. Because there really is nothing more frustrating in many cases for a designer or a developer when somebody comes along and says, oh, this should be really easy. Just do this, this. And they don't really understand the complexity of what they're asking. And I think having a leader in place who, you know, whether they're doing it now or not, at least that they understand that is, I think, for leadership opportunities for the rest of the team, especially in our world uh, of being a digital agency, it's, it's just huge. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that I realized a few years ago, and I hope that I that I catch myself any time that I do this, going back maybe about 10 years ago, one of my employees 
pointed out to me that I was using the word, this should be easy, this should be simple, Mm -hmm. that should be quick. And they were right. By my doing that, I was minimizing them and their ability to do their job and how I viewed it. So they felt like I was just not viewing what they did as important. So I try to be very, very conscious now of not using those words. And it frustrates me because there are some times where, let's say, a client or a prospective client will say that word to me and it gets my back up because our work isn't easy. Our work is challenging and and you're hiring us because we're professionals who can do great quality work. So that that sometimes just gets under my skin a bit. Yeah, absolutely. I totally get that. And it's, and it's hard for people that, that haven't done it before. They're on the outside. They're clients. I have to remind myself of that and remind our team of that, that they really don't know how hard some of this stuff is. And and they they look at something and think, well, this should be simple, but simple and easy aren't the same thing. And even though something needs to be really clear and, and, and concise and, and clean, that doesn't mean it's going to be easy to get there. So it's reassuring to hear other people, you know, dealing with the same things, regardless of location and, and team. Absolutely. I mean, here's a little game for you or for anybody who hears who's listening to this podcast to do. Go on Facebook. Take a look at whenever anybody's asking for a recommendation for something to hire somebody. It's always like, find somebody great for me who can do this job because it's really simple, so it shouldn't be expensive. Or mm-hmm. find somebody who can do this for me really quick. And you just realize that people don't realize that by doing that, the person they're looking to work with or hire, they're minimizing their expertise right away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I try and be conscious of that too myself whenever I'm working with somebody else because I always have to tell myself, look, if this was really that easy, then why am I looking for somebody else to do it? Why don't I just do it myself? And usually it's because I can't do it myself and I need somebody else who has some level of expertise to do, whether it's plumbing or electricity or any other trade that I have no talent or ability in whatsoever. It might look easy, but only because they've been doing it for 20 years. That's exactly it. In other words, it's that expertise that somebody else has that you don't have. It's an exchange. And that's what that's what we're doing. That's how this whole business thing works, which is, you know, I want to work with you because you do things substantially better than I do. And I hope that it will be reciprocal the other way around. Yep. I love that. One of the things I always like to dig into a little bit uh, is thinking through, you know, anybody who's been in business long enough has been through some difficult days and, and you got to learn to walk through those valleys and walk out of them. And I'm curious for you, if there's any difficult days or seasons that you might be willing to share that might be an encouragement for somebody else to realize that whatever they're going through is probably not unique and that other people have walked through difficult days too. What, what are some of the struggles maybe you encountered in the early days of the business that you had to learn how to work out of? So if I'm going to go back to the early days, the the few that I can tell you is that one is none of us, like early partners did not understand money. We really didn't. We understood there was money in the bank, so we can pay the people. We didn't think and we were not forward enough thinking of of thinking beyond this month. And then all of a sudden, I mean, the, the first big crisis we had was in the early 2000s. We had work for the people who were sitting in the office at the time. We didn't think about what happens in two months from now when that project's done. And we had we had made the mistake of overhiring or not reacting quick enough when we didn't have enough understanding of, of the work that was coming up. And that was the first lesson, which is how to manage money. And we had made mistakes with that, made mistakes with taxes. And my general feeling now, I'll always say, is the first thing you do is just pay your taxes. Get mm-hmm. them out of the way. Don't fool around with that because that is probably going to be the most aggressive person coming to get your money if if you have any kind of financial problems. That would be the one first thing. That was the first big lesson that we definitely learned. You know, the, the, the other thing that I've always found the most difficult is always relating to people. In other words, if we have a client that's a difficult one to deal with, 
those are the things that will tear the team down. Those are the things that will really hurt morale. So whenever we find somebody who doesn't mesh with us, and I never now use the word bad client because there's no such thing for me as a bad client. It's just a person whose personality doesn't mesh with us. Mm. They could mesh perfectly with another team who who is different from us. So you know, whenever we have a client that, that doesn't work, that's usually the thing that I need to find a way to have them move on to somebody else as quickly as possible. Same thing, whenever there's been major stresses in the office, it's usually there's some team member that we have who hasn't worked out. Um, it's been rare because I think we've actually been really pretty good at hiring and identifying who's a good team member and how somebody fits in. But the few times that we've had stress in the office, it's usually been related to that. Yeah, those are three really big things. Money uh, relating to clients and hiring. Uh, the money thing is... Uh, I think just so huge cash flow is probably one of the number one reasons. I think it is the number one reason that people go out of business within the first couple of years and certainly not paying your taxes or at least not understanding that process <laughs> can be really bad. I've had a few uh, negative instances myself over the years where things didn't get paid at the right time. And all of a sudden they stack up and they stack up really fast uh, if you don't do them Absolutely. in the right time frame. I'm curious uh, with the relating to people and not using the bad client term, which I, I love that, although I still probably use that term sometimes. Um, <laughs> I'm curious for you how you identify and when you're able to identify that this is not this person or this team or this company is not a good fit for us and we don't or we're not a good fit for them. What helps you identify that? And then how do you sever that relationship in a way that is as positive as you can so that you're not burning down bridges and creating a lot of negativity out there? So the first thing is I find that I think one of the important parts of my job, especially that I'm the first contact with most clients and prospective clients, is to be that first filter. In other words, if I can ask the right questions or I can have that proper conversation, I should be the first line of making sure that we don't take on work with somebody who's not going to mesh with us. Truth is, I don't always get it right. Um, and there are times that we end up working with somebody who just doesn't fit with us right. The goal then is to find the, the way to kind of have them move on. I don't even see it as severing a relationship. I see it as having setting up a framework for them to move on to the next team that they're going to work with. So I think the way that, that we do it now, it's probably the best is being open and honest. In other words, we're saying the words, hey, it feels to me like this relationship is not working as well as it should. And the person on the other end is almost always going to say the exact same thing, like, yeah, this isn't working for us either. And the key is then making it something where you say, let's work together to transition you to the next team. And I have no problem putting in the time and effort to actually take take whatever we know, transition it to another team and move somebody off in a positive way. That's the way we found the best way to do it. In other words, there is no firing a client at Plank. Uh, I really see it as working to transition them to somebody else. Mm, that's good. I mean, I, uh, I'm i not sure I'm quite that gentle, and maybe I need to learn from that a little bit. So that I, I like that perspective a lot. And then so let's move down one more then and, and dig in a little deeper into the hiring question. When you're working on hiring the right people, how do you find the right people for your team? And, and what's been successful for you in that hiring process? There's so many questions that come into searching for the people, doing the interviews. You know, how do you guys do it? And what, has, what have you found that's worked for you? So it used to be uh, up until about three or four years ago that I would do the majority of the interviews. I would be the one leading it and I would be the one choosing based on instincts. There would be times when it was, let's say, be a developer, we'd do some more checking on their code and testing, but it was really led by me. Now, and this is really a little bit more of a revelation over the past year or two, is that 
I realized the transition to me not being the only person interviewing, myself and Steve interviewing, but also encouraging the whole team to be involved in the interviewing process. What ends up happening is I think the team that we have now is less influenced by me and my bias because my bias would have been and always is to choose somebody that I kind of mesh with. And I forget that it's not just about meshing with me. It's about meshing with everybody who's sitting in the office. And as a result, I think we have a more interesting, diverse, diverse, and not just physically or, or diverse as far as uh, uh, ethnicity or background, but just diverse in ways of thought. And I mm. think that that's been a healthy change. Yeah, I love that. And the idea of having the whole team involved, or at least, you know, key portions of the team, they're going to interact with whoever the new person is. Um, I, I love that. I think that's really huge. And, and even you realizing that that person doesn't have to just mesh with you, but they got to mesh with everybody. And to some extent, that's almost more important that they're able to work well with the rest of the team than even just you, uh, especially w- once you get past a certain number. I think once you get past probably 10 people, that's even more true than it is if you're just two or three people. Absolutely. I'll tell you a little story. That, that, And again, this is some of the things that I've been thinking a lot about recently. When we first started the company, and maybe even up to a few years ago, uh, maybe maybe more than a few years ago, but still recent enough, my first view on who we should hire is, hey, can I go out with them for a beer? And if I could have a good conversation with them, that's the kind of person we want to have on the team. But you know <laughs> what? That's unfair because that that knocks out so many different people. What if somebody doesn't drink? What if somebody isn't interested in drinking? What if somebody's more shy and insular and they would be uncomfortable in that situation? So I was putting that on somebody on somebody else as a way to choose the team. And now that that's gone away, I think we're choosing better team members that actually fit, not just myself and my expectation, but the expectation of the team as a whole. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I think that those ideas are really critical and it's easy to take a long time to get there. So that's one of the things I love about this podcast is being able to share this with other folks out there who are in business. And if they just take one thing away from a conversation like this and go, oh, you know what? I need to try that. I've found so many times having those opportunities, especially being at events, you know, like Owner Summit and things like that, that, that a lot of us go to. I mean, that, that's been really valuable for me to just gain insight from other owners and learn what other people are doing and how they're doing it. Yeah, I'd agree with you. I mean, the the Owner Camp, Owner Summit, Bureau of Digital Experience, I think was really defining for me personally. Part of it was because on one level, you get reinforced with, oh, okay, I'm doing all right. There's a lot of other people out there who are doing some of the things that I'm doing. So you start to feel good about what you're doing. And I think it's important to get that positive reinforcement. But it's also important to see the different ways people are. Like when you look at that whole community that we both interacted with, there are some really different characters and really different people running companies in different ways. So it's a matter of seeing others who you can aspire towards or you can learn from and and then and make make the company or yourself better because of it. Yeah, I don't know about you, but for me, one of the biggest takeaways from a lot of those types of events too is that there's not one way to run a company. And my mm-hmm. company doesn't have to look like your company. And and that's okay. You know, uh, there might be things that, that each of us do that are similar or I might you might list 10 things that you guys do. And, I'm, and I might have one of them that I go, you know, what? that's a great idea. Let me try that. And I might hate the other nine and it might not work for my team and my culture and my location. And I've just learned over the years to go. That's OK. It doesn't have to be somebody else's system. It can be that that's why many of us start our own companies is to do things the way we think is right, regardless of what anybody else thinks in the long run. I think you're 100% right on that. That's exactly how I feel about that, too. 
So one of the things I always like to do as we start to get a little farther into these episodes and start to get towards the end is one of the struggles for a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of business owners is to get so wrapped up in the business that they feel overwhelmed or feel like they don't have time for anything else, whether it's friends or family or community outside of work or or whatever. And I'm curious for you, there's that whole work-life balance question that comes up. I don't even love that term, but it's the easiest way to describe it. I'm curious how that's worked for you over the years, and and do you struggle with that, or is that something you've been pretty comfortable with? How do you define work-life balance, and, and how does how does your life take shape around the business and outside of the business? So my my silly answer to that is there is no work-life balance because <laughs> it's all work. But but I, but I'm lying <laughs> if I actually put it that way. On one level, to be honest, I mean, I don't personally have a family, so I don't have a partner, I don't have children. So on one level, you could say, well, he must just only work on his business. And I could I could play that up if I wanted to, but that's not 100% true. I've learned how to take time for myself and balance myself out. I would describe myself as a little bit more introverted, but I use that not in the stereotypical way, but more just, I need to recharge to have any kind of energy. So I can have energy for the 40 hours that I'm sitting in the office working with the team, preparing work, but I also need to have that downtime to rebalance myself. So I have hobbies that I take care of. I try to travel, and if I do even travel for work, I always try to take a day for myself so that I have the opportunity to enjoy and experience uh, different things. So I definitely invest time into myself as a balance to the amount of work that I put into work. Now, I definitely love my work. And I'm willing to bet a lot of people would call me a workaholic and I wouldn't, they wouldn't be wrong with that because I am driven by what I do. I still wake up every morning excited to go into that office. That's awesome. And I think ultimately, at the end of the day, if you are in a place where you're not burnout and where you're, you know, you feel like within your own environment, you have harmony or balance or whatever is the word that we want to use, I certainly don't believe it's like 50-50, like life has to be half work and half other things, you know, some, mm-hmm. some, I mean, even for me, like I, I live in a different world cause I've got five little ones, you know, running around between wow. the ages of five and 13, but that goes back to, to like the way I'm doing things is my way. And the way you're doing things is your way. And neither one is, you know, necessarily right or wrong. It's just, you know, how we've chosen to, to operate within our spaces. And as long as we're able to find a place that we're not ending up at the end of the day, completely frazzled all the time. I think that's mm-hmm. what's most important for business owners out there is to go, hey, there's going to be seasons where it's a little bit crazy inside of work and, and you're going to have tough days and maybe even tough weeks and months. But but finding, I think, your own harmony is, is really important. And I think it's not even about me. If I think about my team as well, each one of them has a different lifestyle. Yeah. You know, there are multiple people on my team who have children, obviously. There are multiple people on my team who don't have children. There are people who are in their 40s. There are people who are in their 20s. Mm. Um, so everybody's lifestyle is slightly different. And everybody's life expectations are different. And we as a company have to be ready to adjust to that. In other words, I recognize if somebody has young kids and they've got to go pick them up from daycare, they have to have a flexible schedule. And they have to be, we have to be flexible with that. But at the same time, you know, we accommodate other people's lifestyles who do different things. So I think it's not just about my work-life balance. It's about the work-life balance of the team as a whole. Yeah, and I love how much you obviously care about your team. I think that that is the sign of a many successful leaders and probably a, a sign of why you've made it uh, as many years as you have in business. Yeah, the funny thing about that, and, and again, these are some of the things that I've 
thought about recently is one of my biz- biggest weaknesses and probably at the same time one of my biggest strengths is that I'm not driven by money. Mm. So I know that most traditional company owners are, are at some level driven by money first and foremost. That was not why I did this. I got into this because I had an interest and love of the craft. Mm. The money has come with it and the ability to pay this team of roughly 15 people has turned itself up. But I'm, that's not my de facto focus. Mm, that's awesome. And you got to know what motivates you and you got to know what motivates your people. And it's not always money, even even team members. I mean, once people hit a certain uh, amount of income, sometimes it's other things, like you said, flexible schedules, or it could be a, a million other things, depending on who the person is and knowing what those people need, want and desire is probably uh, more important than knowing what I want most of the time. The other reality, too, is is the one thing that, that, that I think small digital studios like ours have to realize is that we can't look at Google as the model for yeah. the kind of business we're going to build. I think there was a time at which I, I, I saw those Google perks of, you know, meals every day and gym memberships and all those things. And I, and you know what? Good for them. They're a public company or there were hundreds of billions of dollars. They can afford that. Mm-hmm. We're a small company. There are certain things that we can offer lifestyle wise. There's a certain humbleness that we offer. And that's what's going to drive people who work with us. If somebody is driven by money, it's going to have to be with companies that are much bigger than us that, that can afford to do that. Yeah, you got to know who you are and what your culture is and, and what you're able to provide. And I think that that's, um, that's critical. Mm-hmm. One of the last things I like to wrap up with, there's two final questions. The first one's going to be how you continue your own growth. And the last one's just a chance for any other things that you think may help other business owners out there. So first question, uh, how do you continue your own personal uh, leadership growth, personal growth, craft growth within the industry? Obviously, we're in a very quickly changing industry. Um, is it books? Is it podcasts, blogs, events, a mentor? What is it that helps you kind of feel like you're able to keep learning and keep growing? My answer to that is yes to everything above that you just mentioned. <laughs> um, I, I, I love to read. Reading is probably the first line of, of things that I like to do. So reading is definitely something that drives my my you know knowledge growth. I also feel like I like to learn and I'm pretty good at independent learning. So I can take that on myself. But at the same time, I definitely invest into events for growth. Um, we mentioned before the owner camps and owner summit um, events, and those have been fantastic for building a network of people that I now can rely on. And if I travel somewhere, I can go out for dinner with them and we can sit and talk about what we're doing. I mean, in some ways, what we're doing right now is part of that experience. And I think that that's been really powerful. I mean, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's probably the main ways that I, that I do it. I mean, it's, it's independent learning. We've definitely, I've brought on business development mentors that, that we've been working with. We now have a virtual CFO who's helping us out. So we're starting to learn how to depend on a community and our network to, to build a better business. Yeah, that's 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 good stuff. I think that continuing education is, is critical for anybody. you got to find a, a way to make it work for you. Any final thoughts, things we haven't covered, things that you think might be helpful for other people who are wanting to build a business that lasts? So this is going to be maybe a little bit of a, not theoretical, but more just, you know, uh, a cushy little idea and might seem a little bit flippant. But the reality for me is, I think if it was for me, if I was starting a business or I was in a business, the first thing I'd want to make sure is make sure that it's something you're passionate about. Mm. Other people might have be driven by other things. If tomorrow there had to be another business that I had to start, I would look at what I'm passionate about and start from there. That's how Plank started, which is I was passionate about the internet. I was passionate about computers and I was passionate about creativity and design. 
And that's still the focus of the company. The company's changed enormously over 20 years, but that core interest of myself is still the same. Yeah, I love that. I love the passion that you have for your work still after 20 years. I love how you uh, obviously care about your team and the people that you work with and, and working with the right people and and just the way you um, you care for folks. I think that's really, really respectable and uh, something I definitely aspire towards. So, uh, Warren, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you. This has been great. If you want to find out more about Warren and his company, Plank, you can find them online at plankdesign.com. They do some really cool stuff. I would encourage you to check them out and uh, find out more episodes at buildingabusinessthatlasts.com. I hope this episode has given you some ideas or inspiration that will help you grow your business. If you found it helpful and you know somebody else who might benefit from it as well, I would greatly appreciate it if you would take the time to share this with them, maybe on Facebook or Twitter or LinkedIn, or even shoot an email over to a friend uh, with a link to this podcast in it. And if you haven't already, make sure you sign up for our email list at buildingabusinessthatlasts.com. 